name is Jonathan Habercroft, and this is the Just Riot Theory Podcast. When I present my work on political rioting, one objection I often encounter is that rioting is anti-democratic. In liberal democracies, if you have a grievance, there is an existing process that you should work through to change society. You can demonstrate, you can petition your legislator, you can contest an election, and work through the normal political processes to change what you don't like. Riots, however, circumvent this by using violence and intimidation to scare leaders into acting. Taken to the extreme, a committed minority could use a riot to subvert democracy itself. In fact, we saw an example of this in January 2021, when supporters of Donald Trump rioted and stormed the Capitol building to stop Congress from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Violence cannot be democratic because a key feature of democracy is the use of reasoned deliberation by citizens to decide on policy. Instead, we should use the force of the better argument to persuade our fellow citizens, rather than using violence to coerce them into agreeing with us. Or at least this is the argument that's presented by me to those who object to the idea that rioting might be justified. My guest today, Stephen Darcy, contests this argument. He claims that in some instances, riots are actually good for democracy. In his 2013 book, Languages of the Unheard, Darcy introduces an idea that he calls the democratic standard. He argues that democracy is public autonomy, by which he means that a society is democratic when the people govern themselves through reason-guided public discussion. Yet in some circumstances, a society strays from this democratic ideal, and it is in those cases that Darcy argues it may become necessary to apply pressure on elites through adversarial, confrontational protest. In those instances, protests may even become violent. His book considers the relationship of democracy to militant protests through the analysis of six different examples of direct action, ranging from civil disobedience to armed struggle. But what I want to talk with him about today is his argument that rioting can occasionally be seen as an example of democracy enhancing rather than democracy subverting activity. Stephen Darcy is an associate professor of philosophy at Huron University College, which is part of Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. A longtime social activist and protest organizer, he teaches and writes about democratic theory and practical ethics. He joins me today to discuss the connection between rioting and democracy. I, I like to just start by asking how how did you become interested in militant protests in general and riots kind of specifically? Well, you know, when I was a, a graduate student, I became actively involved in anti anti poverty activism in Toronto and also in labor labor movement struggles, uh, both going on strike uh, myself twice and also. Uh, supporting other strikes and so on. So I, I, I was involved quite a bit in confrontational uh, types of social protest, um, including at times things that things that get called riots. I mean, what, what exactly is a riot? Is something you know we'll probably discuss today. But 
Uh, I was involved in, in riots, both in the student movement and in the anti-poverty activism that I did. Um, so I felt like I had some firsthand knowledge of the confrontational protest in general, rioting and, and, and other types of, of protest. And I felt that I, you know, learned a lot in that experience, an awful lot. And in fact, I often thought to myself that people participating in these social movements have a much more sophisticated grasp of a lot of things about the nature of the police, about the legal system, and so on. And in particular, they have a very cynical and suspicious <laughs> view of, of these institutions. And so I, I, I developed this. And meanwhile, I was studying political philosophy at the University of Toronto. And I felt there was a bit of a mismatch between the emphasis on sort of ideal theory, as it's sometimes called in political philosophy, uh, which you know talks about liberal legal orders in a somewhat idealized way, sort of half talking about the real world and half talking about how it's supposed to be. And that left me a little uh, in a situation where I had a kind of uh, almost a double awareness of, on the one hand, the real world of politics, uh, and in particular, social movement politics and struggles against social injustice. And on the other hand, these idealized ways of thinking about them, and that left me a little dissatisfied. At the same time, I developed an interest in normative democratic theory, and in particular, the de deliberative theory of democratic legitimacy, which was very... I guess you could say fashionable at that time in the late 90s. And uh, I still take it very seriously and consider myself to be broadly influenced by and aligned with the deliberative theory of democracy. Now, the deliberative theory of democratic legitimacy says that something is some process, decision-making process is democratically legitimate to the extent that it is informed by inclusive, reason-guided public discussion. And I felt like you know, this was the right idea of democracy. You know, I, this was the this was really capturing the core of what democratic politics was all about. At, at the same time, the deliberative democratic theorists often had this assumption that if that's what democracy is, then the democratic virtues, the virtues of democratic citizens, should be associated with discussion, dialogue open-mindedness, willingness to compromise, and so on. So going back to my first point about being involved in these confrontational protest movements, these were often struggles against intransigent adversaries, right? And they were adversarial struggles. They were confrontational struggles. They were struggles against corporations or governments that were unwilling to be moved by the, the force of the better argument. So it wasn't, it wasn't enough to just say to them, you know, the way you're treating these people is unacceptable. Uh, we need we have we need this and that, and you're not giving it to us. You're denying us what we need. Please be reasonable. Like that was never enough. It always had to be through struggle and through an adversarial and confrontational process to to make to force concessions upon these systems of power and these elites. Now, the the deliberate theory of democratic legitimacy would kind of imply that those struggles are undemocratic because they're not really about discussion, they're not about dialogue, they're about struggle and defeating an adversary. And so I know that's a little bit of a convoluted and, and long-winded way to answer, but what all of this led me to is that I really wanted to figure out why it is that I'm drawn to, on the one hand, a theory of deliberative democracy, which is about this idealized process of discussion, and on the other hand, these social movements, both of which I think capture something about democracy. 
And I wanted in a way to have an integrated theory of a normative theory of democracy that explained why, as the subtitle of my book, my book is called Languages of the Unheard, why uh, militant protest is good for democracy. So I wanted to, to say that what it is, what is it about these militant protest movements that is democratic precisely in the sense that it promotes the self-government of people through reason-guided, inclusive public discussion, which I think is a complicated question and required me, I felt, to go into a lot of detail to figure it out. And that's really how I ended up with that as a research area. So the common perception, I'd say it kind of both the media, but also politicians, is that riots are always unjustified. So you're, you argue kind of the opposite, or at least that under some circumstances, they might be justified. So why do you think that common view is mistaken? Yeah, so rioting is one of those words, a little bit like the word violence, um, that we often use when we talk about protest, where depending on how one uses the word, right, it's sometimes used in a way that kind of smuggles in some normative assumptions uh, beneath the surface level descriptive character of the, the word, right? So on the one hand, if we say that a riot took place, it sounds like a, a descriptive, a description of something that happened and a kind of factual question, well, was there a riot or wasn't there? But I think a lot of people use the word rioting in a way that's informed by this, what I call the public order conception of rioting, which is all about crowd control and policing, where rioters are seen as, as a problem and they're seen as associated with intimidation and violence and so on, a destruction uh, and, and that sort of thing. Also disorder, chaos, you know, irrationality as well, right? And so there's all this normative baggage that's brought along with the word rioting in the way it's used in what we might call sort of main, mainstream public discussion a lot of the time in the newspapers or, or what have you. But I think we have to, especially in the context of philosophy, we have to think a little bit more critically about how we use a word like rioting. And I, I'm not one of those who rejects the word because of the normative baggage, but I want to draw on a different tradition. Instead of that public order tradition, I want to draw on the way historians often talk about rioting, where it is a, a democratic force. It is a way in which um, disempowered people can push back against the unchecked authority of um, the powerful. And so I think the question is, if you think about rioting as a type of civil defiance, that refuses to comply with the established civil, civil authority and those enforcing that authority. It, it's a little bit more value-neutral description. I, I won't claim that it's entirely value-neutral, but it's a little bit more value-neutral. It doesn't have as much normative baggage. We can say, well, you could be doing that in a good way or a bad way. Right? You can be doing that in a way that promotes more popular control, more democratic control from below of um, society, or one that actually has the opposite effect. So, for example, I would say there was a riot on January 6th of this year in Washington, D.C., which was a kind of a right-wing anti-democratic riot. Not, not anti-democratic because it's right-wing, but it was right-wing and it was anti-democratic riot, I would say. And it was defying civil, civil authority and defying the police and so on. But it, I think it would be quite a stretch to say that it was democratizing, you know, it was a demo democratizing force, that it was pushing it back against the powerful. Uh, you know, that's a, maybe that's a complicated question and it would take a long time to explain. But my view anyway would be that that's very different than some of the, the, like some of the Black Lives Matter rioting, which was trying to, in a way, 
push back against the unchecked power of the police and so on. So I think when we think about rioting in a more value-neutral way as defiance of civil authority and its enforcers, it sort of raises a bunch of normative questions as opposed to smuggling in answers in advance to those questions. It puts them on the table. Well, why are you defying civil authority? What is the likely effect of doing it in this case? What other things are you also doing or have you tried to do before and so on? And we can sort of unpack the, the politics of a particular rioting instance and, and assess its uh, moral qualities, right? Whether it's something we should admire or something we should condemn. So political philosophy doesn't really have much to say about riots, but there is a tradition of theorizing about civil disobedience. And you, you touch on this in your book also. You have a full chapter mm-hmm. on that. So how do you think that civil disobedience is different from a riot if both are kind of clearly defying civil authority? Right. So in, in the case of you know civil disobedience, uh, the way it's often understood, in, and certainly in political philosophy by people like Rawls and, John Rawls and Ronald Dworkin, for example, it's understood in terms of a background understanding that the legal and political order is accepted by the protesters as authoritative to some extent. Well, okay, it's ambiguous because they're defying it, but they're defying it and saying, we know that we're going to be arrested and charged and we will acknowledge that we've committed a crime and we'll accept the penalty. And so in that sense, there's an acceptance of the authoritative character of the legal and political order that in some sense... The, the legitimacy of the legal order isn't contested. It's particular laws that are contested. Now, um, I do consider that a type of militancy, but in a way, rioting is a more far-reaching, wide-ranging type of militancy because it's confronting the legal order as such in a way. You know, I think in practical terms, you're, you're going to see that the, 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 the rioter will not follow instructions or cooperate with the police or cooperate with the process of arresting them. Now, civil disobedience, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it. Civil disobedience, they'll often have to, you know, insist that the police drag them out of a place or something like that. So they're not going to walk uh, out. Um, so, okay, there's a, an element of defiance there. But I think in rioting, people are more likely to literally resist the arrest, right? They're going to fight back against that. They're going to defy the whole process. And so in a sense, they're trying to break out of the whole legal order and its authoritativeness, at least for, for a period of time. And so there's a kind of a, a kind of a comprehensive repudiation of the authoritativeness of the, of the legal and political order that, that rioting involves. Uh, and so in a way, it's a, I'm tempted to say, I'm sort of improvising this this way of putting it, but it's sort of like a matter of degree about like, you know, a particular targeted defiance of a particular law versus a full-blown defiance of the legal order. Um, I think that that makes them both instances of militancy, but rioting has a very different flavor, much more confrontational and much more, um, well, I'll just say much more confrontational. And leave it at that. <laughs> okay. So the concept of confrontation is central to your book. Your your books are dealing with this idea of militancy mm-hmm. and militant protest. And I think both those terms may be outside of activists outside of activist circles might be a bit unfamiliar. So would you mind defining those terms for our listeners and then explaining how militancy is different from political violence and, and disobedience? So militancy to me is a very general term, and and I want to co- I want the term militancy to cover 
a range of different types of activity, including civil disobedience, including rioting, including black blocs, including armed struggle and sabotage and so on. So I define militancy as grievance motivated, adversarial and confrontational collective action. So it's, you know, it's grievance motivated in the sense that it's a type of protest. Not every time someone, for example, damages a tractor or a, a construction vehicle, I should really say, uh, it's not always, you know, it could be vandalism or something like that. But, you know, militancy, if you're, if you're destroying a construction vehicle to disrupt a construction project that you're protesting, that's the type of militant protest, right? So, so it's grievance motivated, first of all. Secondly, it's adversarial in the sense that it's a type of struggle against intransigent elites or unresponsive systems of power. So, you know, militancy doesn't think about its adversaries as partners in a dialogue, right? And this, again, goes back to this idea of if democracy is self-government through reason-guided discussion, the deliberative, uh, the kind of what I might call the naive deliberative Democrats might say, well, shouldn't we just be talking to the corporation and discussing? Well, the militant does not think that. The militant thinks it's an adversary that has to be defeated in a struggle. Um, it's not a, a type of dialogue or a type of cooperation. And then thirdly, militancy is confrontational in the sense that it tries to directly challenge and create problems for institutions. It's not just trying to express complaints or communicate uh, grievances, but to confront, um, to confront the people or institutions or practices that allow them to continue those, the injustices that they oppose. So grievance-motivated adversarial confrontational collective action, but how you go about that could, could be any number of ways from armed struggle on the one, you know, on the one side, I don't want to say one extreme, but I will say on the one end of a spectrum and civil disobedience on the other end of a spectrum with rioting falling somewhere in the middle. Uh, so that's what, that's what militancy is, grievance motivated, adversarial and confrontational collective action. So what, how does it differ from, you asked about political violence, you know, so political violence could be and sometimes is a type of militancy. It all, you know, it depends on whether it, uh, on the context. Uh, like I, I think an assassination is probably not militancy in my sense. It's not a type of collective action. And, um, you know, maybe you could say there's an example, there, maybe one could cite examples where assassinations could be interpreted as collective action. So, that, you know, there's, there are some gray areas about, you know, the, the exact boundaries of militancy, but I'm thinking about, you know, social movement militancy is what I mostly have in mind by collective action. So uh, political violence, though, however, in some cases, I would say there are definitely cases of armed struggle as an example of militancy. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question. I don't know if you want to follow up on that. Well, so maybe let's, let's just push it a little bit further, because I think central to your books, this idea that militancy is a criteria for what you call the democratic standard, right? And that's that to me is the most provocative claim in your work because I think most political philosophers, when they talk about political violence or civil disobedience, they almost see it as kind of a limit at the edge where democracy breaks down. But you actually say that that actually militancy is necessary for democracy, that it's actually a democratic good. So maybe you could just kind of unpack that idea a bit. Sure. So I, I think like, 
you know, my sort of democratic way of thinking about militancy, and, and, and a big part of the book, as you say, is in a way, I, I always take Martin Luther King Jr. as my point of departure, but I, but I differ with him in important ways. And one of the ways for him, the crucial distinction is between violent and nonviolent. And for me, it's the crucial distinction is between democratic and undemocratic. And what I really want to say is that what makes democracy, sorry, what makes um, militant protest democratic, what makes it good for democracy and important and crucial is that democracy understood as reason-guided, self-government through reason-guided public discussion is kind of powerless in the face of intransigent elites and unresponsive systems of power. So if you have a system of power, an unresponsive system of power could be something like the police force or something like that, or the prison system, but it could also be something like race, like white supremacy or, or patriarchy or something like that. So a system of power is unresponsive when you can't just change it by arguing with it. You can't just change it by make by the force of the better argument. So democracy is really about self-government through the force of the better argument, through the, the through, you know, reason guided, inclusive public discussion. But This type of democracy is powerless in the face of a system that just doesn't care what the best argument is or an intransigent elite that says, well, there is no alternative. This is just how it has to be. So democracy, in a sense, shrivels up into a kind of uh, superficial um, exercise in in, um, decoration, kind of decorating power politics with these superficial fake dialogue processes that really have no potency, really can't be put into effect. So what we really need is ways in which power um, power is challenged or limited or overturned by forms of, these systems of power are overturned by popular empowerment. So people have to be able to muster the kind of social power from below that they can represent a kind of alternative source of power or pull to these systems of power that are unresponsive. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, rioting is an example where you have a a situation where the police can just do whatever they want to people individually, one-on-one over a period of years and and mistreat them in all sorts of ways, you know, murder them and, and abuse them and so on. But in a riot, you suddenly, the situation, you sort of turn the tables. And now that unchecked power is facing a kind of popular empowerment that pushes back and makes it impossible to ignore the, the unheard, as I like to say, the, the, the people whose voice is left out of, of politics. So that's why I think like militant protest is really part and parcel of any plausible way of thinking about deliberative democracy, that you have to kind of empower people to be heard to be listened to so their grievances are taken seriously and taken into account rather than just being persistently ignored, which I think is the normal state of a, of a modern society that people, you know, these systems sort of just mostly just ignore what people think about climate change or what they think about poverty or homelessness or other things like that or, or police racism. So I just want to kind of keep pressing on this writing as de- democracy angle here, or potentially as democratic. So you, you throughout the book, use this idea that you call the democratic standard. And you say that's the criterion against which you want to assess different kinds of actions. So, so I, I guess, could you explain what you mean by that? Maybe we could kind of ground it in two examples. So perhaps the Minneapolis riot and the George Floyd protests of kind mm-hmm. of last summer, and then the Capitol Hill riot, because you said that earlier you said you thought that one was authoritarian. 
So how would your concept of the democratic standard analyze these two cases? So at the heart of the democratic standard is this democratic ideal as the democracy is um, self-government of equals uh, through inclusive processes of reason-guided public discussion, right? So that I'm just kind of taking over this deliberative idea of democratic legitimacy. Um, but the democratic standard is really a standard for when it is still democratic to depart from dialogue and discussion in the face of intransigent elites and unresponsive systems of power. And I have these four principles and I'll just sort of run through them. You know, it's, it's sort of better absorbed, you know, by reading the book and so on, but I'll just run through them kind of quickly, but not too quickly. The, the first one is that militancy should create new opportunities to resolve substantive and pressing grievances when attempts to do so through reason-guided public discussion are thwarted by intransigent elites or unresponsive systems of power. So, so the first principle then I call the opportunity principle is just saying, well, it should be a way to empower people who are silenced or ignored by, by these systems of power. The second is the agency principle, which says that militancy should encourage the most directly affected people to take the lead in securing the resolution of their own grievances. So we don't want some kind of self-proclaimed um, group of advocates uh, or sort of self a selected group of advocates to claim to speak on behalf of some other group of people, but for people to be empowered to take the lead in their own struggles. The third is the autonomy principle that militancy should enhance the power of people to govern themselves through inclusive reason-guided public discussion. So it shouldn't make it harder to do that. It should make it easier. And then finally, the accountability principle says that militancy, militancy should limit itself to acts that can be defended publicly, plausibly, and in good faith as duly sensitive to the democratic values of common decency and the common good. So all these taken together, I call the democratic standard. And the basic idea is that how can we do confrontational and adversarial political activity in, in, in the face of these systems of power that are unresponsive to reasons? How can we do that in a way that still exhibits or embodies a kind of fidelity to the democratic ideal, right? That remains faithful to the idea that we are demo we're democratic. We want inclusive reason-guided public discussion to win, to, to, to sort of win out in the end, not just brute power and force. Um, and so we're going to organize in a way that involves empowering people to speak for themselves and so on. Now, you brought up the two examples of the George Floyd protests on the one hand and the, the Capitol riot. So in the case of the George Floyd rioting, this is a case where you have a persistent pattern over a long period of time of police racism and violence protected by the legal system and ignored by politicians. Um, right. So you have a system where individual police officers are targeting uh, uh, black people for racist abuse and violence and intimidation and so on, and a situation where they feel they can do this with impunity and the legal system, there are no legal consequences and so on. So it's a, it's a situation where you have one of these unresponsive systems of power. You can't reason with, you can't simply, as it were, dialogue your way out of this situation. And it's been for generations and generations, this has been in place and promises of reform and so on are, uh, have shown themselves to be hollow over the years. So now you have a situation where people are drawing a line in the sand and saying enough is enough. Um, we're going to push back and we're going to defy this um, 
system of power uh, through rioting. And now one of the limits of rioting, and I talk about this in the book, that rioting doesn't really bring about change. Well, what it does is it can temporarily at least shift the balance of power so that some people's grievances are impossible to ignore. And that's the sense in which it's a language of the unheard, is that it became a lot harder to ignore the grievances of the people affected by this type of racist policing during and after the rioting than it had been before the rioting, right? And we saw all sorts of things that they, you know, promises of reform, legal proposals about defunding the police and so forth. Now, to really make those successful, you have to also follow through with social movement organizing on a longer term basis to keep putting pressure on politicians and so on. So a riot is not going to really make the change, but it's going to say that or it can have the effect of making it the case that you can no longer ignore this, these grievances. So to me, it's a clear-cut case of if you go through these principles, I mean, the people most directly affected were the ones who took the lead in that pro- in those riot- that rioting. Um, I do think it enhanced the power of people to govern themselves through reason-guided, inclusive discussion because they people you had to listen to people now complaining about the police. You couldn't just ignore that. And now, as to whether it limited itself to uh, actions that could be defended publicly, plausibly, in good faith is duly sensitive to the democratic values of common decency and the common good. In my view, yes. I don't think much was done by most of the people that couldn't be defended that way, although that's obviously debatable. Um, and my, my view isn't that it has to be uncontroversial, but can you stand up and say that this is consistent with common decency and the common good? I'm going to say yes to that, <laughs> and some people will say no. Uh, I do. I do give examples in the LA riots of, of individuals being sort of randomly, tar- you know, targeted and beaten severely uh, by rioters that I would say d- didn't exhibit, you know, due regard for common decency as a democratic value. And in that sense, you know, I do think uh, sometimes even in a riot event that has mostly perfectly democratic activities going on. Nevertheless, there can be individual actions that are unsound, as I would say, militancy and uh, worthy of condemnation even. But you don't, you don't have to condemn a whole group of rioters because some rioters do something bad. Anyway, turning to the second riot, sorry, this is going on a while, but the second riot you brought up, the January 6th one, you know, to me, this is a case where essentially it wasn't that the voice of the voices of people were not being heard. And so a forceful intervention was necessary, right? This was a situation where a forceful inve- uh, intervention was used in a cynical way to thwart the voices of people being heard through the political process. So, you know, trying to pr- make it the case that a person who lost an election because... Who, who lost an election, trying to make it the case that that person can stay in power and that the votes won't be counted and so forth, is uh, not plausibly defended in this type of basis, that this is making it impossible to ignore the voices of people. Now, you can say it's the voice of a minority of people who wanted a different outcome. Yes, but it doesn't embody fidelity to the democratic ideal. I mean, this is, to me, the crucial point, is the democratic standard says of all of our protest activities should embody fidelity to the democratic ideal. And I, and I feel that the January 6th, um, the, the, the pro-Trump riot or whatever, embodied a kind of contempt for the democratic ideal. 
uh, a hostility to popular power and uh, an authoritarian sensibility, an author authoritarian impulse to use kind of brute force to try to impose uh, your will, you know, to thwart democracy and justice rather than to favor it. I mean, I don't think democracy and justice was really ultimately on the on the ballot in the election. So mm -hmm. you know, that's a whole other story, but uh, I'm not trying to endorse the outcome of the election or anything like, or say anything about that. But I think the riot itself on January 6th was an attempt to reverse a democratic riot. It has much more in common with a coup d'etat, I think, than than some of these democratic riots. That's the type of answer I would I would give. Yeah. So you've hinted at this a bit, um, that perhaps what's called the riot varies from person to person. There's There certainly is an activist circle, sometimes a resistance to using the word riot. Sometimes people prefer to use things like uprising, describe Minneapolis or Los Angeles in 1992, and then perhaps massacre for something like the Tulsa race riots back in the 1920s. And so riots obviously used in different ways, and it is, as you said, quite a, a quite emotionally loaded, normatively loaded term. So how do you define a riot, and why do you think this definition matters for your theory? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as I said, uh, it, it, the, the term is controversial in part because it does – it is often used in a way that smuggles in this normative content that is um, – basically disapproving, right? So that if you call it a riot, it's um, implicitly a criticism, a little bit like if we call a killing a murder, so that if someone killed someone in self-defense, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say they murdered someone in self-defense. We would say they killed someone or they used lethal force or something like that. We would use a more a term other than uh, murder because murder has this idea of illegitimate built into it. And some people hear the word rioting that way. And in fact, some people do use it that way quite explicitly. Uh, but as I said before, there's these two traditions. There's the public order conception, and then there's the historian's conception where rioting is a, is a way in which poor people who are kind of, kind of locked out or frozen out of political power find ways to insert themselves forcefully into political processes and push back against unchecked power of elites and systems of dominance. Now, you know, the, the term rioting, the reason I keep it is partly because I take very seriously that tradition of rioting as a form of popular empowerment. And I kind of embrace that rioting and that whole way of thinking about rioting as a democratic force. But you know, in a way, in a more fundamental sense, it's really that I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to think about rioting as something that raises a lot of moral questions, but doesn't already answer them. And I think we can do that. I think uprising is just flipping it and say, let's use a really positive word, you know, and, and smuggle in the normativity in, in a different word, but it's going to be positive normativity. And I get that. And that might be sensible in some context in activism. But I think in philosophy, we really want to have a relatively uh, value-neutral term, which enables us to put the questions on the table so we can sort through them and ask, well, what exactly is this behavior? And when should we admire it? And when should we oppose it? Right? And that means that we should ask questions like, does it empower people to insist on no longer being ignored? Does it uh, force... Um, corporations or government or other centers of power to finally address or at least pay attention to grievances of exploited or oppressed people. 
and so on. These are the kinds of questions that democratic theorists of writing should be asking. And I think when we do, we're going to say, well, sometimes it is a democratic force and sometimes it's not. And that's what we should expect, really. Right. We should expect it to, to not be good just by definition or bad just by definition, but but a type of activity that we can assess in terms of good or bad, admirable or contemptible uh, on a case by case basis, but in a principled way. And that's really what I try to do, use my principle, democratic standard um, set of principles to sort of sort through different types of rioting and figure out when we should admire it and when we should oppose it. You introduce what I call a typology of four different kinds of riot. So do you mind explaining what those four types of riot are and then why you think that only some of those types of rioting are justified? So, I mean, just the other day in England, you know, after the the, the soccer, the football match uh, ended in disappointment for the English fans, um, there was activity that you could call rioting, right? But it's not to, to, to equate that with some of the, the, the George Floyd protests would be just confused and confusing, I think. So we have to really sort of develop a way of understanding both what's common to all of the things that might be called rioting, but also how they can be very, very different in ways that are crucial for any attempt to morally or politically assess rioting behaviors. Um, so although there's a general notion of rioting that I use, which is fairly expansive and all-embracing, which is something like the, you know, the defiance, collective defiance of uh, the established civil authority and the those enforcing it, the police or the military or whatever. There's that kind of general idea of rioting, but I, I break it down into different genres, as I call them, of rioting, or different sort of styles or types of rioting. The first and most basic type is what I call grievance rioting. And this is the, the familiar type of protest rioting, the LA riots or LA uprising, if you prefer, the Stonewall riot and some of the Black Lives Matter rioting and so on. So in this type of grievance rioting, you know, the, the crucial thing is that it's a type of protest and it's motivated by some struggle for justice or democracy. And I'll, that's all I'll say about that for now. The second one, though, is second genre is recreational rioting. So recreational rioting is when people are defying civil authority, not to press demands for justice or democracy, but for some sort of fun or excitement or kind of thrill-seeking behavior or that type of thing. Um, and the, the, you know, the typical examples would be the sporting riots of various types. Here in Canada, we have Stanley Cup riots every once in a while. Uh, when, you know, either sometimes it's when they win, when their team wins or when they lose a, a hockey game in the playoffs, they might have a riot. Uh, there's also football hooliganism and so on. So these types of recreational rioting is essentially recreational in the sense that it's for fun or excitement or thrills. It's not pressing a demand. It's not a type of protest. A third type or genre is acquisitive rioting which is looting when it has no protest motivation. And this is an important qualification because in practice, it, it can be hard to tell the difference between a looting as a type of grievance rioting and looting as a type of acquisitive rioting. So when, when I say acquisitive rioting, I'm talking about looting where people are trying to just take advantage of a, a breakdown in civil order to acquire goods, 
that they might not otherwise not be able to afford or whatever. And I, I, I mean this to be, I use the term acquisitive, in, I'm attempting to be value neutral. I'm not judging it for or against. I'm not condemning it and I'm not praising it. I'm just saying it's something that sometimes happens where people will try to uh, do that. It's a type of rioting, but unless it's a, a type of protest, as it sometimes is, unless it's motivated, at least in part, by some kind of grievance, then it's it should be separated because you can't really defend it in the same way. You'd have to have some other way of defending it, mm. like distributive justice or something. And then the fourth genre is authoritarian rioting. So authoritarian rioting is something like Kristallnacht in the Nazi era Germany or the, the Tulsa um, race, racist terror riot uh, that you alluded to earlier um, and, and so on. So uh, authoritarian rioting is when the aim is to intimidate or humiliate or attack a vulnerable population. So, you know, it's very different from grievance rioting because it's not really anti-authority rioting. It's actually trying to, in a way, assume a kind of mob authority, a violence-based authority to dominate and, and terrorize or victimize a targeted group. So obviously this is the most the hardest to defend and the, the most sinister type of rioting. Uh, maybe the only one that I, f- I feel is sinister almost by definition, although whether I'm doing that thing that I say I shouldn't do, which is <laughs> include the normative content in the definition we could talk about. But I think um, it's, a, you know, when you're just trying to describe different riots, I think you have to have this concept of authoritarian, right? There, there, really, is, there really are examples where people are defining the legal authority, not to press demands for justice or democracy, but to, in a way, create an opportunity for themselves to target a vulnerable population. Uh, for humiliation or violence. Um, so that really does need to be part of our kind of larger theory of rioting. Otherwise, we're going to have be constantly confronted with kind of counterexamples. What about this riot when it was, you know, any attempt to kind of have a, a, def- a qualified defense of rioting is going to be subject to a lot of counterexamples if we count these as riots, but don't in a way separate them out in some important, in some principled way. So that's why I have this fourth concept. Um, so the way to assess all of these is the same for me. You can assess all of these in terms of the, you know, really the democratic standards obviously meant for assessing protests, but you can, you can explain what's wrong with, or what's in a way not particularly impressive or defensible in terms of democracy about all of them in the same kind of way. Like, do they empower people to govern themselves through reason guided public discussion? or not is the kind of question we would ask. And obviously authoritarian writing doesn't, acquisitive writing doesn't, if it's not pressing a grievance, but it doesn't, it's kind of in a way neutral. And then recreational writing, again, it's kind of mostly irrelevant to democratic politics. Um, so my whole way of, of assessing the, the morality, the political morality of, of writing and other types of militancy motivates me to focus on that one type grievance writing. So, do you know this book by Vicky Osterwell? It's called In Defense of Looting. It it came out a little. It came out about a year or two ago. Um, and so, it struck me that she she actually offers, I think, the most forceful defense of looting. And she, she argues that in some circumstances, either redistributive or it can be kind of a defensive means of protest. Right. So, you're at least in your book, acquisitive rioting is generally not justified. So. 
then you kind of just hinted in your answer that you think that maybe there might be some circumstances where looting might be justified. So do you think there are circumstances and, and what kinds of cases might it be permissible to engage in looting while, while protesting? So, uh, you know, as I alluded to in my, in my last answer, I think acquisitive rioting, I don't really want to equate that with looting. I want to say that looting could be grievance rioting if, and in the book, I actually do quote Martin Luther King Jr. as saying that sometimes looting is a way to lash out at the white power structure. I think he says something like that. And uh, in those cases, when that's what it is, when it's a way of uh, pursuing a grievance in, in a way or, or pressing a grievance, as I like to say, then I, then I don't think it's necessarily acquisitive rioting. It's actually grievance rioting in the mode of looting, okay? Hmm. So I would distinguish that from acquisitive rioting where it's just in a way you might call it opportunistic acquisition of consumer goods, okay? So it's, yeah. you're not doing it to protest. So, I, I, so even in the book, I, I, say, I do make that distinction. But let's, so, so when it's grievance rioting, then it's subject to the same types of thing. If it's, if it's consistent with the, you know, the dignity of each and the welfare of all, and it's and all these types of things that I talk about in the democratic standard, then yes, I think it, 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 looting can be justified as a type of grievance rioting. Now, in the case of acquisitive rioting, which is looting just to, to acquire uh, um, objects or whatever, in that case, which I think also happens... And sometimes, as I also, I do point this out in the book, that sometimes people might not even know why they're doing it fully, and they might not be entirely clear on why they're doing it, or they could have multiple reasons. We can always do things for more than one reason, right? So, but in any case, let's say someone is just doing it. They're not, they, they're not even participating in a protest. They're just kind of trying to take advantage of a situation. In that case, there could be a, a defense of it, a justification for it, but it's not going to be about the democratic role of protest, right? It's not going to be the same kind of justification that my kind of theory of legitimate protest or sound militancy is designed to talk about. It's going to be justified in some other way, namely probably on distributive justice grounds, that there's too much poverty and inequality and uh, the wealth produced by you know, poor and working class people is mostly monopolized by wealthy elites or whatever. And so as a result, you know, there could be some kind of distributive justice rationale for, for, for looting. It, obviously, it's, you're, this is not what, again, to use this term in, that we use in political philosophy, sometimes ideal theory. The ideal theory of distributive justice would be to have some sort of institutional restructuring of society so that it is a more fair distribution. But this would be a more kind of um, rough and ready type of um, improvised or ad hoc type of redistribution. That could be a way of defending looting that was not meant as a form of protest that might work. I don't know. Like I haven't, I haven't tried to write or think much about that, but I'm not averse to the idea that you could defend it in that way. It's just, that's a very different project. Cause for me, I'm really interested in why militancy is good for democracy, not other things that could be done that could be justifiable in other ways. Yeah. So you argue that grievance rioting is a means for the voiceless within society to, to acquire voice, which is, I think I thought of a very provocative kind of phrasing. So can you just, would you mind just explaining what you mean by that? Okay, so I was drawn to this term voice, partly because it connected two kind of independent 
discourses. One is the way Martin Luther King Jr. and others talked about protest as a way of giving voice to the voiceless, or as it might be better to say, the voiceless kind of claiming their voice or something like that might be a more, strictly speaking, a better way of putting it. But so on the one hand, there's this idea that King has that there are voiceless people, by which he means unheard people, as he also sometimes puts it. People who they, they express their, their grievances and aspirations, but they're persistently ignored. And on the other hand, there's a different, a second kind of discourse about voice that um, I think is closely relevant and that I take up in the book, which is Albert uh, O. Hirschman's uh, book, Exit Voice and Loyalty, where he develops a conception of voice as the ability to bring about changes by making complaints, by expressing complaints, right? And he's interested partly in things like customer service. Like if a customer complains about the service they're getting or a product they get or something like that, how motivated is the, the, the business, you know, to try to change things to address their complaints? And he points out that, well, the extent of your voice, that is the ability to be heard when you make a complaint, depends on whether you have exit options. So if you can take your business elsewhere, as they say, then the, the, the business is going to say, well, wait a second, we'll try to address your complaint, we'll give you a new product, or we'll try to do better or whatever. Um, but if they're a monopoly service provider, so that you can't take your business elsewhere, and you have to use them, well, they're less, less motivated, Hirschman argues, to address your complaint. Now, obviously, I'm not interested in all that the, the business side of it or whatever, but I'm interested in the impl- application of this to democratic politics because what I argue is that the legal order itself can become comfortable with ignoring entire populations, right? The legal and political order can become comfortable with essentially ignoring people if those people have no exit options. And I argue that rioting embodies a kind of makeshift and temporary exit option where people can say, we're actually going to exit from the legal order. We're going to defy the whole legal and political order temporarily, admittedly. And, uh, but we're going to do it in a way that shows that when we do have at least one exit option, we can completely defy your authority. And that creates an incentive to listen to. And and we kind of know this in practice that albeit usually only for a short-term window and a a, a more, as I said before, a more long-term organizing project has to kind of take the initiative at that point. But a rioting can open up a a, a kind of space or a a period of time where it becomes impossible to ignore a set of grievances that have been persistently ignored for a long time. So the idea of voiceless means persistently ignored, usually by systems of power that are comfortable continuing to function in a way that ignores a group of people or their grievances. And so uh, acquiring voice or or reclaiming uh, your voice means forcing systems of power to listen to you or forcing your issues onto the political agenda. And that doesn't mean, or because a rioting is very temporary, um, it's not really going to see it through. That has to be done by social movement organizing. But I do think that rioting, rioting can open up possibilities of being heard or make it harder to ignore people. And in that sense, it's a kind of a way of creating voice for the voiceless. And then that's why you know, I count it as, as I say, a language of the unheard. Yeah. So that quote, the, the, lang- the riot is a language of the unheard from Martin Luther King, 
that's the title of your book, gained a lot of attention after the Black Lives Matter riots in Ferguson and then Baltimore, then Minneapolis. But there's obviously been some pushback, both from the political right and also political centrists such as Joe Biden, against the idea that rioting can be politically legitimate. So how does your theory help us make sense of these recent protests then? Yeah, so I mean, I always come back to these two phrases, intransigent elites and unresponsive systems of power. And and I think, I mean, what, a danger of philosophy is that we we talk at a level of abstraction where we kind of, um, it isn't obvious maybe to to everyone what we're talking about in practical terms, but intransigent elites are, you know, politicians who say, well, there's just no alternative, it has to be like this, or, or a corporation who, a corporation that just... Uh, it has these consultation processes, you know, with indigenous people supposedly that are just a kind of formality and they just don't listen. Um, and these unresponsive systems of power are markets or bureaucracies or systems like patriarchy and white supremacy or the police and so on, the prison system. These kind of th- these things are all the types of, types of things I have in mind when I say intransigent elites and unresponsive systems of power. And, you know, the police as I said, are a kind of classic case of that, where you can't just reason with them and you can't get them to change by making a really strong argument as to why they should change, right? Because people have been trying that for many generations and failing. And one of the, you know, to go back to a point I made earlier, one of the frustrations I have with deliberative democratic theory is there's a kind of social sociological naivete where there's a kind of, a kind of pretending or, Talking, talking oneself into the idea that the force of the better argument can really win out in the long run. But, you know, really that's not the case, you know. So you need to be able to muster some kind of popular power to give democracy the kind of weight, that is to say, reason-guided public discussion, the kind of weight behind it to, to over, overturn or um, push back against these systems of power. Now, Let's look at those riot. Let's look at those riots. Uh, you know, I touched on this before, but in a situation where people's grievances have been ignored for a long time, people's arguments, which are obviously good arguments, are ineffectual. You know, you have a situation where you have an unheard. The people are unheard, right? And they lack voice in Hirschman's and King's terms, and so. What I think these types of movements, not just the rioting in those cases, you, you, those examples you gave, although certainly in those cases, but I think in the whole history of social movements, what we have is attempts by people to organize themselves, uh, to confront adversary, the adversaries of justice and democracy, really, in ways that push back against the unchecked power of these of these systems and and, and elites. Now. If you think about the case of police, right, uh, you know, usually police are exercising their tyrannical power over individuals sort of one at a time or a few at a time, right? And they can't really defend themselves. They can try, but that will just in a way make it worse and they'll end up maybe dead or, or whatever. So what rioting did in those cases was now when there's thousands of people on the streets all defying the police at the same time, it kind of turns the tables, it kind of reverses or changes the balance of power so that people can finally say in a way out loud directly to the police exactly what they think about them 
they can defy them and they can actually, whereas it's usually the police that can act with impunity. Now it's protesters who can act with impunity, right? They can do things and not end up getting arrested or charged. Even they throw something at a police officer. So that's a situation which is, uh, I think, really important for democracy, right? Because now this idea that you can just act with impunity, ignore people and their legitimate grievances for generations and generations is at least for a time no longer true. And now um, you're afraid of them, right? And I think that that's, you know, you know, it's not my definition of democracy, but one way to think about democracy is like the government should really be afraid of the people instead of the people being afraid of the government. And I, and I do think democracy means, you know, hear the people rule and the government obeys, which is a, a Zapatista slogan. Hear the people rule and the government obeys. And a riot is kind of like that. For, for this period of time in this place, the people rule and the police are afraid of us for a change. And so, uh, you know, maybe this is a kind of kind of a kind of long winded and uh, unfocused answer. But what I'm really trying to say is that what I've been saying all along is that uh, these types of confrontational adversarial collective action pro- processes can be something that weakens the grip of these intransigent elites and unresponsive systems of power and strengthens the position and ultimately the voice, the capacity to be heard, the the insistence on being heard of ordinary people. And that's why to me, it's clearly a democratizing force. Again, riots can't really win these things in the long term, but they create openings that can be seized upon by social movements um, in the longer term. That's super. Um, so, your book, I, I don't want to give the impression that your book's only about rioting. In fact, it's one chapter out of kind of several. So your book actually covers a series of different cases that you kind of cover under militancy. So you also talk about civil disobedience, disruptive direct action, the black bloc, armed struggle and sabotage. So kind of briefly, how do you see these other kind of protest tactics or acts of political resistance as related to rioting? And do you also think that these other modes of militancy can be justified? So I think like all of the different types of militancy that I talk about in the the book, I think can be judged by the same standard, which is the democratic standard, right? So in each case, like if you take, let's take just very briefly, take the example of armed struggle. Some types of armed struggle involve like a tiny group of people who are really not accountable to anyone, who are not really sensitive to the democratic values of common decency and the common good, meaning that they're willing to, let's say, just have sort of kill a security guard at a, you know, a, a, at a bank or whatever to rob a bank in, in a way that is hard to justify in the context of democratic politics, right? Um, and it doesn't really empower people. What it often creates is a kind of, it opens the door for this kind of policing to, um, to start violating people's constitutional rights and so on. So I, I think like there, that's a type of armed struggle, which is hard to justify. I, I call that the clandestine cell model of armed struggle. And I contrast that with the people's militia model of armed struggle, where the, the armed struggle is not just a few people, but maybe hundreds or thousands of people involved, hundreds or thousands of people involved, like the Zapatistas is an example. And where they're actually su- subject to the um, decision-making processes of a wider social movement. They're not operating independently and unaccountable to a wider social movement. And they are respecting these democratic norms of common decency and the common good, or the, as I say, the dignity of each and the welfare of all, and so on, right? Um, and they make it 
they make it easier for people to govern themselves through reason-guided public discussion, not harder. So if you, if you contrast like the, the Zapatista movement, which has an armed capacity, to uh, something like, you know, the Red Army faction or something like that in, in, in Germany or, or the Red Brigades in Italy in the 70s and 80s. In, in these types of groups, in this contrast, the Zapatistas versus the Red Army faction, for example, it's clear that my democratic standard can be a basis for justifying something like the armed force used by the Zapatistas, uh, but also a basis for criticizing the limitations of some, uh, something like the Red Army faction. And I, and I would say the same thing for all the different types of, of uh, militancy that I cover in the book, Black Blocks and so on, that using the democratic standard, it helps us sort through why it is that some of these things were sometimes comfortable with and sometimes were uncomfortable with them. And uh, throughout the book, and I think maybe one of the things that was most important for me in the book was to use this concept of civic virtue to think about militancy, partly because <clears throat> so often militancy is associated with a kind of, it's kind of pathologized in a way or seen as a problem or something that we want to discourage. I uh, see militancy as a positive thing often that we want to encourage, right? But we don't want to just say, well, all militancy is equally good. We want to say, well, when should we admire it and when should we be suspicious of it? And I think the democratic standard can help us sort through what kinds of sabotage are admirable, what types, what types of rioting are admirable, and what types are you know, contemptible, or at least maybe contemptible is sometimes the right word. And sometimes we want to use a a less extreme word and say, you know, we're troubled by certain types of militancy. Um, so we need a standard. I try to develop a principled standard uh, that helps us sort out, well, when, is this in a, when, when does this embody civic virtue and when should we regard it with a little bit more suspicion or a more critical stance? Yeah, well, super. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Steve. And the, the book is called um, Languages of the Unheard, uh, Why Militant Protest is Good for Democracy. It's by Stephen Darcy and from Zed Books, and I'd encourage all of you to check it out. Thank you very much. It was, it was a good discussion. The Just Riot Theory podcast is part of my British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship project called Just and Unjust Riots, a normative assessment of militant protest. It is produced by Thea Hartman at the Public Engagement with Research Unit at the University of Southampton. Funding for the podcast series was provided by the British Academy. 